A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Approximately 50% of the most commonly prescribed pharmaceutical drugs originally from natural sources, and actually some of the most modern cancer drugs. A lot of uh, pain medication that people take every day, they're all still grown in plants. Hello everyone, and welcome to On Jimmy's Farm with me, Jimmy Doherty. This is the podcast where we discuss environmental issues and try and give everyone a slice of the good life along the way. Now, I'm down right on the perimeter of the farm today, just checking on some of the fences, make sure everything's all right, but actually it's an excuse to go on a little bit of a nature ramble. I love checking out the hedgerows, because for me, they're a bit like the rainforests of the farm. I'm just looking at all these brambles and all the bramble flowers coming out, covered in hoverflies and solitary bees, and there's beetles there, all feasting on that pollen, and of course, they're pollinating all the flowers and they're going to be all the lovely blackberries later in the summer going into the autumn. All the haws are coming out. There's endless blossom. It's just a richness for wildlife. One of the most beautiful things, I think, on a farm is a, is a well-established hedgerow. Wonderful. So, folks, this is the last episode of this podcast. Now, I did this podcast as a bit of a celebration of a 20-year anniversary of Jimmy's Farm. It's been a real pleasure to do. We've had some fantastic guests, and it's just been a wonderful experience. I've really enjoyed talking to people about farming, about connecting with nature, everything in between, and I hope you've enjoyed it too. And the last guest is a wonderful guy that is a bit of an inspiration for me. I had the pleasure of working with him on Food Unwrapped a number of years ago, but I watched all his TV series and I've got his books, and that is the fantastic James Wong. Now, James Wong is an ethnobotanist. He is a lover of all things to do with plants, but he's a wonderful guy. He's so interesting. Not only do you listen to him for gardening tips and gardener's question time, but also on Instagram. He's got the best Instagram feed. He's obsessed with terrariums. And we have a good old chat about his love of nature, his love of plants, what got him into the whole thing, and the future of it all, really, and why more people have got to connect with plants. When it comes to the natural world, we always think about the animals. We watch these documentaries with lions and tigers and elephants, but actually, Plants are so, so important, as we know, for locking in carbon, but also having plants in the home. You know, house plants, so important, but also, I'm a bit of a nightmare when it comes to house plants. I love growing stuff outside, but often my house plants cop it fairly early on. So I asked James, what's the secret of keeping them alive? So listen, 
Hope you enjoy this episode and I'll see you all back here by the hedgerow watching the bees and the butterflies. Now I'm joined by the lovely James Wong. James, how are you getting on? Yeah, not bad. Why do you call me lovely? We've only worked together once before. You haven't had a chance to... (laughs) <laughs> but you are love. In my opinion, you are lovely because I I got to work with you on Food Unwrapped, yep. and you were very charming. And I have followed your career for many years, and I always listen to you when you're on Gardener's Question Time. And you are a joy to listen to and to talk to. So you are the lovely James Wong, an elaborate ruse, Jimmy. This is where I reveal <laughs> it all. You're a lovely guy to talk to. You're extremely interesting. And in the world of botany and plants and gardening, you're slightly different to the kind of presenters that I've watched on lots of gardening programs, Gardener's World and all the rest of it. Your journey into botany is quite interesting. How would you describe yourself? Oh, that's a good question. I work in gardening, so I work in horticulture, but I'm not a trained horticulturist. My background is in botany. And just, you know, so we uh, explain some of the maybe slightly more obtuse terms. The difference between botanists and horticulturists is botanists study plants and horticulturists learn how to grow them. So there's loads of botanists who have no idea how to, you know, germinate cress. They know what the cells look like under a microscope or how the DNA works or how, you know, to collate historical samples of plant material gathered hundreds of years ago. But in terms of living material and actually being able to grow it and recognize different plant names, for example, or how to get plants to perform things we would like to do, you know, to make them look more aesthetic or to make them fruit more, there's often a big gap. So there is a bit of a crossover, but they're quite different. And maybe it's my scientific background that uh, gives me a slightly different approach. I don't know. I think that it can be quite difficult for most people to grasp that because if you're not like in the industry, if you're not one of the geeks, I think it's all plant people, right? And they're all the same. And it's really fundamentally very different. And your journey throughout has been really interesting. I think that one of the things that I loved watching a number of years ago was Grow Your Own Drugs. And just the title of that, it's so catchy and catches your imagination. Because when you think of plants, you think about growing vegetables or growing flowers. But the idea of growing your own drugs, and when you think about it, all our medicine is pretty much plant-based. I can't take any credit for that. But when they told me, they gave me two titles, the very smart TV company that sort of made it. And they approached me and they said, we've got these two titles. One is called Garden Doctor. And the other one is called Grow Your Own Drugs. And we have a strong preference for the latter. But we think that you'd probably be more comfortable with the former because, you know, I'm a boring, skeptical scientist. I was like, no, I'm absolutely up for the second one because I know from your point of view, it's catchy. It's what I think TV people used to call spiky, like it's yeah. slightly controversial, but not really. But from my point of view, I thought it was the most scientifically accurate one because I'm not a doctor. And I think the wonderful benefit about Grow Your Own Drugs is it says exactly what it says on the tin. I think many people have this big black dividing line in their minds between kind of natural, which is safe, mild and potentially ineffective and then synthetic medicine which is going to be highly effective but potentially with big side effects and you know really opposite kind of polarities but the reality is the source of what is in a pill whether it's from a lab or from the natural world is really irrelevant it's what the compounds are and whether they work or not and their biological effects on the body and yeah you're right approximately 50 percent of the most commonly prescribed pharmaceutical drugs 
originally from natural sources. And actually some of the most modern cancer drugs, a lot of uh, pain medication that people take every day, they're all still grown in plants. If you're looking for a place to find biologically active chemicals, the natural world is a really good place to look. It literally is the living drug cabinet, isn't it? So your love of the natural world and your love of plants, where was that rooted? Where did that all begin? Oh, loads of people ask me this question. I never know what to answer. So, you know, when I was younger, I used to feel like I had to invent some kind of origin story. (laughs) People would almost like, they would ask you leading questions. They would say things like, James, so does it run in your family? Or did you have a really influential teacher? And I sort of thought, well, I did grow up in Singapore. So, I mean, it's tropical. So you're physically surrounded by plants for most of the year. So there's more physical opportunity to be in contact with them, to find them interesting and learn about them. So I guess. And secondly, in Southeast Asia, people still use plants for things. They don't have the luxury of considering plants as outdoor furnishing for an extra room in your house. They're considered functional objects. So most people's gardens until very, very recently would be filled with fruit trees and medicinal plants. The ornamentals may have been there, but its primary function was as a practical space. But then I thought, my brother, who's obsessed with football, no one's ever asked him, have they? Paul, you know, did you have a really inspirational teacher? Or does liking football run in your family? No one's asked him that. I called him up and I asked him that. And yes, no one has ever said that. And he said, yeah, Jason, because that's football is interesting. And to me, I think it's the opposite way around. I can't even imagine how anyone would be interested in football, but I accept that they are. And to me, I think it's weird that people aren't interested in plants. I know it's unusual, but every aspect of our basic biology is basically predetermines us to be interested in plants and the natural world. So it's kind of a strange cultural quirk in the modern West that some people aren't. Yeah, the idea of being into nature, being into plants is something you do as either a child or you do it as a scientist or a very sort of specialist interest. But it's funny you said about your brother interested in football, because my brother was obsessed with football and I was obsessed with the natural world. And I always saw it as a little place I could go that was full of wonder, like a little escapism or this whole world that no one tapped into. I always thought it was madness. My mum and dad were really busy. My mum was a hairdresser. Dad was a builder. Busy lives, running around business and my brother into football. And and I was a bit like, well, this is all a bit weird. But look at this. The cat's just brought in a dead mouse. Isn't it amazing? (laughs) Well, let's go and catch some grasshoppers or, you know, run through the meadow. And it was just like not Huckleberry. I I suppose a Huckleberry Finn-esque way of going to this whole world. The more I looked, the more there was to see. And I always found it fairly hypnotic. And I think once that's in you, it's always there. But somehow society dampens it down as you get older and go through being a teenager into right what are you gonna do for a job what are you gonna and you've got to put all this sort of love of nature somehow away and get a proper job i think one of the amazing things is, is once you're attuned to things around you you can see wonders in everyday life i'm at the moment visiting my mum down in croydon she lives in a 70s kind of suburban kind of housing estate i've been here loads like hundreds of times walked on the street and i went out for a jog yesterday and on a grassy verge, probably 20 meters from her front door, there are all these bee orchids. I've only seen bee orchids in textbooks or in Attenborough documentaries. And people are walking past them all the time. And it, you actually do have to get pretty close to notice them because they're not big and flashy like the, you know, the supermarket tropical orchids. So I've probably been, even as a trained botanist, within about three meters of them on multiple occasions and only just seen them today. 
And when you suddenly discover that, it is kind of the miracle of life, but hiding in plain sight. Yeah, it is. It's incredible, isn't it? You suddenly let into this sort of little privileged world, or you've, you've just seen it through a different way, and it's like, wow, I love those elements. Be orchids, funny enough, I've got them in the meadow just up the hill, and you walk across, you don't see them at all, and all of a sudden you see one, and then you see yeah. another, then another, and you're like, oh my God, there's a whole colony that I had no idea is here. It's almost like, have you ever been to one of those parties and you think you know no one and then suddenly someone says hi and then you're kind of like your vision swings into focus and you suddenly realize, wait, there's 20 of you. I know all of you. It's a little bit like that. You wander through not seeing anything with plant blindness and then suddenly, you know, they're all in front of you all the time. There's something to me so exciting about that, particularly in horticulture. I think most people will recognize, particularly in the experience we've all had over the last two years, that it's universal that taking a break and walking in nature, like walking in a woodland, will make you feel better, that it can make you feel more optimistic. It can actually, according to some trials at least, reduce pain levels, reduce anxiety levels, even speed up hospital times, physically being in a green space. But what I think that fewer people realize is that when you're looking at nature in that way, you're actually looking at it in a very passive way. It's almost like watching nature on a TV screen, like a very elaborate three-dimensional TV screen. With horticulture, you're not just witnessing the miracle of life, you're actually having an active hand in it. So when you're sowing seeds, which is one of like the first horticultural memories I have, I have a, a picture of me when I was about two in some old margarine cartons <laughs> in my back garden in Singapore, sowing seeds. It's the miracle of life that is somehow you have a hand in that, you spark that. I think there's a weird thing in horticulture with a lot of cultural baggage gets in the way. When we think of horticulture, we think of there's a lot of class mm. labels. There's a lot of tradition labels. This has to be done in a certain way. You have to have rolling acres of Dorset. You have to have done things like the Victorians have done. You have to be, in inverted commas, a proper yeah. gardener. But no one says, I'm a proper nature lover. It's such a shame that people are starting to get more into nature. But I think the appreciation of horticulture was the ultimate expression of love of nature is a little bit behind. It is tied up in a lot of sort of traditional concepts, the idea that you've got to prune your tomato plants a certain way and it's frowned upon if you don't do this and do that. And actually, who's made those rules up? I mean, it's try and test in terms of if you're growing veg commercially and stuff like this. But if you just want to do it for the pleasure of growing, it doesn't matter what you do, really. Actually, and I can tell you who's made some of them up, Victorian gardeners. There seems to be this idea, a bit like, you know, management yeah. speak has all kinds of colorful words for very obvious concepts that make them sound smart and justify their position when they're usually quite obvious. That kind of jargonistic yeah, yeah. speak appears to have been a lot of that in Victorian horticulture. We take that received wisdom on in a very classist way. You know, there, there is one best way to do it, and that's the person at the top of the pyramid. And we've all got to copy that. We've all got to copy the head gardeners of landed gentry from 200 years ago. And if you don't do that, it's not proper gardening. When you actually look at any scientific trials that have been done, like the vast majority of Victorian horticulture is not based in science. It's complete fruit loopery. It'll give you usually the same, or if not worse, results for a lot more work. And in many instances, it was things like, there's this idea you have to wash your pots every winter. You'll see it in any gardening textbook. You know, the reason why Victorian gardeners washed their pots is because they had an excess of labor during winter that was not doing very much. And they had to give them work to do because it was seen as being lazy otherwise. So they were just giving themselves extra work to justify <laughs> it. Now, as people have plastic pots, there's even less reason to do that. It is strange, isn't it? The idea that also somehow you've got to conquer nature and make it fit into what you believe it should look like. It was often the way with the Victorians. 
But the thing I want to talk to you about is that you talked about your brother being obsessed with football. My brother's obsessed with football. But how do you turn something you're obsessed with into a career? Because obviously, if you're obsessed with football, you can become a footballer or a football manager or whatever. But you with plants, how did you decide to, I want to turn this into a career? This is going to be what I want to do professionally. I think it's a very weird situation that you are asking me this question because I think I should be asking you this question, Jimmy. I think in the success stakes, you're definitely a whole bunch of rungs ahead of me. But I can tell you, I mean, how I hope to try and achieve it. I don't think I have achieved the things I'd like to do, but I studied it. So I had a quite a conventional route into botany. I didn't do it in my undergraduate uh, for kind of lots of complex reasons about coming from a very uh, conservative Asian family and not being able to study the things I wanted to do. But I ended up doing a master's in it and working in horticulture and botany. One of the things that I think is very tricky is that there are very few jobs. There are lots of people who are interested in the natural world, but there are fewer jobs than you may imagine. And the route into that isn't that obvious. You know, if you want to be a lawyer or a doctor, the route in what to study and how to progress in that is quite linear and well-trodden. If you want to work in botany and particularly in science communication, which is what I do, it's a little bit harder. What I found is that being really persistent, (laughs) and I think being slightly obsessed with things, allows you to be more persistent than other people, definitely helps. So I found things like, I was wandering around Chelsea Flower Show when I just graduated uni, I was in my early 20s with some mates. All my friends are kind of horticulture geeks. And I was like, you know, I think I could do a good job at this. I think I could do a better job than this guy, at least. And they were like, James, that's ridiculous. <laughs> I'm like, I'll, I'll apply. Well, you know, it, it might be silly, but what are they going to say no? And they said, James, you have to be someone to be at Chelsea Flower Show. You wouldn't just apply. And I was like, there must be an application form online. They all sort of said, you know, you have to come from the right family, or you have to know the right people and have the connections. And guess what? I went online, there's an application form and filled it in. And okay, they didn't say yes. They said, we like your idea, but we've got to test you out at Hampton Court, which is the other RHS flower show, to see if you can, you know, you have the stuff for Chelsea. And you've got to prove to us that you have a sponsor who will actually make this possible. So I then thought, well, now I've got a a sort of an offer. I've got to call up sponsors. So I just cold called hundreds of companies with the same speech over and over again until one said yes. I did a garden where I was essentially completely unpaid for it. The sponsorship only covered the plants and building and didn't cover a fee, which was really tricky as a student who's just graduated. But I was persistent. I made sacrifices. I made it happen. And then from there, I've got three Chelsea Flower Show gold medals. But it starts with that. I think a lot of people think the view that, oh, it's only for certain people or, oh, I'm not allowed in the club. See, that's incredible. And there are barriers, but you can push. You can push the door. Yeah, having the tenacity. But it's the idea of the love of what you do and wanting to convey that as well, I think really drives you on. But it just shows, you know, you just got to get involved. And if you really want to be there, sometimes you've got to create your own position, haven't you? Because that position might not necessarily exist. I should recognise also in this, the world isn't a total meritocracy. I absolutely had privilege in this situation because, for example... I could be in a situation where I was unpaid for a job for the six months that I was doing that design. I mean, I was working minimum wage full time in other jobs to make ends Mm. meet to put that together. I wasn't totally privileged, but it's not like I had four kids as a single dad and was trying to do that at the same time. There was a certain amount of privilege. But there are plenty of friends of mine who would be in much more comfortable situations who would just think that that wasn't for them, that, you know, you couldn't do these things. So I think you definitely 
have to put yourself out there. And it may not work in everyone's case. But I mean, the way I started working on this restaurant term is I listened to the end of the show, got the producer's name. I just wrote to them. I said, I'm doing some interesting stuff in my garden that I think would be really great for your show. Do you want to come over? And they said, yes. Brilliant. Um, there you are. You know, people who work in TV actually have to make up lots of content. And sometimes it's quite hard to think of new ideas. And if an email lands on their inbox one day that's got a ready-made idea for them, sometimes they'll say yes. So yeah, I think tenacity is definitely part of it. And an open-mindedness. I'm not sure that I thought I was so wonderful and everyone, you know, I had this huge self-belief. I don't think I even have that self-belief now. But what I didn't think is that you should knock yourself. You know, you can definitely put yourself out there and see what people think. And maybe they don't like it, but sometimes they do. Yeah, but also it's not like you're selling yourself. What you're selling, what you're trying to bring across is the love for your subject matter. Absolutely. And I think that is... That is, that's, that's what really drives you on, the idea of going, I love this so much. I just want to tell you about it. I want to show you these amazing plants. And your success at the RHS and winning all these medals, and then that led you on into you know, being noticed by TV and did the amazing Grow Your Own Drugs. And it's interesting when you look at TV and gardening now, because now you're on sort of the gardener's question time, which for me is like the ultimate. I mean, I just love gardener's question time. But... In terms of TV, gardening shows have really changed where, in a way, they've moved away from just being instructive or the kind of thing I like to watch is someone who tells you what to do, the nuts and bolts. Now it's very much lifestyle and makeover shows where sometimes the plants aren't even talked about in some ways. Do you think gardening shows have changed drastically? I think that they, well, I mean, it depends what time period we're talking. If we're talking from when I was a teenager to now, I don't think that gardening shows have changed at all. I think they changed quite a lot between maybe the early 80s and the 90s. Yeah, makeover suddenly came along and plants were not treated as the wonder of the natural world and gardening was not considered an art form when you communicate. Plants were just like the soft furnishings you chuck out at the end when they, you know, the the last scene, Mm. the last two seconds when it was like, oh, quick, they're coming back. Let's throw out (laughs) the cushions and light the candles and shove the big reveal. Gardens were like, the plants were just that. And I think that a big part of the reason that people were not into gardening and still are not into gardening is that's their understanding of what plants are. Their understanding is they think about as exciting as I think of like some like cheap ass scented candles. Plants are so much more than that, but we have been conditioned culturally into thinking what that is. Nine times out of 10, if I'm like, I'm in a cab or I'm in a pub and you know, someone meets me and they find out I'm a botanist, they'll say things like, oh, so you know how to lay a deck then? I'm like, I have no idea how to lay a deck. I, never, I, I could design one, but I'm not gonna make one out of some recycled pallets that will fall apart the week after the cameras are on. So, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm a snob or maybe I have a different perspective, but I think that makeover has been really damaging for the appreciation with the natural world. And when you look at the new generations, because there are new generations that have suddenly become into gardening, it's very telling the type that they're into. They're into houseplants. And they're into houseplants not through traditional media, not through magazines, not through TV programs. They're into it through things like Instagram. And I think it's in a very large part, not only because people can't afford houses with gardens, but I think one of the fundamental things is that subset of horticulture has been out since the 70s. It doesn't have the cultural baggage that's associated with it. And if you look at why people have houseplants, if you look at the hashtags, for example, that people use, people use words like, uh, hashtags like plants make people happy or plant daddy or plant parenthood. It's all about the therapeutic effect of caring for plants 
and how the care that you show on them kind of is a form of self-care. It's not about a big reveal. It's not about like showing off to your neighbors. I think TV is just probably a couple of decades behind, but I think TV is always a few decades behind, right? Do you remember when you had travel shows where like the package would roll up years after everyone was booking their stuff online? I think, you know, like 10 years from now, we'll have suddenly a houseplant show that's like, it's a new thing and no one's been doing it. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's interesting when you talk about houseplants because you would think of houseplants. I remember growing up, my mum and dad would be going to the hardware store and they've just done up the bathroom. You'd put a few houseplants there. And there wasn't really the cultural element of houseplants unless you were very wealthy and you had a, you know, a great big conservatory or a hothouse. Gardening was, for my family, the working class was just growing some veggies out the back or some roses or bits and bobs. But now I think you're so right with social media and talking about social media, your Instagram feed is incredibly beautiful. It's a joy to watch because when you're in conversation, you can, you know, you're very elaborate in terms of your description of the love of nature and plants. You're very scientific. And your artistic element really comes out when you look at your social media because you really capture the beauty of plants, particularly house plants or, or the more exotic plants that I wouldn't necessarily have grown up with. But one thing is for sure, you love a terrarium, don't you? You know what you were saying before about escapism? Yeah. And how nature's a source of that. I think there's that idea of escapism, and I don't know, because we're all colored by our own experience, is sort of epitomized by a tropical landscape. I mean, I grew up in the tropics, so maybe there's that. But, you know, when you're looking at a, a kid's storybook and they go to a kind of a fantasy island or they go to a kind of a mysterious world, it's usually big storybook jungle. Yeah. The things that make you feel small, like the bigger the leaves are, the more towering the trees are, the more dark and kind of inhospitable and hidden certain aspects are in the, in the forest understory. I certainly think that there's that. And 
when I was a kid, you know, like my grandma in Wales used to mail me all the gardening books. But of course, like you couldn't grow any of the British things in the tropics. So she used to send me houseplant books. And a lot of them, because this was in like the early 80s, uh, would be terrariums, which was were really trendy in the UK still. And I found it such an escape. So it's, it's like having your own storybook where you're writing it. You know, when you have a dream, a dream is better than a movie because you're starring in it, directing it and creating the scene around it. So when you read a book at someone else's imagination, when you're in a movie, not only are you participating in exploring that world, you're creating it while you're exploring it. That's what I think terrariums are. It's a little fantasy universe of your own creation. And it can be as small as a 30 centimeter fishbowl. And it can offer you like, I mean, I can spend hours potting around a terrarium because everything is shrunk down into miniature. It's a fantasy world of your own creation. It's something unique. It's the escapism thing. Terrariums yeah. are, are like that. Aquariums are like that. I had that as a kid because you create this little world. Yeah. And the terrarium is exactly the same. You create this beautiful little world. And some of them are so intricate with you know, little tiny trees and the moss and stones. And you almost see a little pathway around. It's replicating what the bigger world is, I suppose, but it sucks you in so much. I think there's something wonderful about terrariums. I noticed it on your Instagram feed that terrariums pop up all the time, but your eye for observing nature and the way you talk about it in terms of the, how excited you are about it and that your knowledge about botany, the artistic element, and almost it's like the first time you see nature, that wow factor when you look through your feed. You get these big verdant landscapes or you'll get the way you just capture a pond with some koi carpet it. I just think, wow, it's amazing. And that's a really lovely thing to have because it's old sort of Victorian naturalists would be watercolour and all the rest of it or drawings. Today, we've got Instagram and it's lovely to see that. It's the greenest, I mean, in colour that I've seen on any Instagram feed. It's just this endless green. <laughs> well, i got to say the secret is if you like plants, I mean, it's hard to make them look terrible, right? But I think there's something so wonderful about Instagram because, you know, once upon a time, I mean, still, if I work in traditional media, I have to go to a commissioner and I have to convince them. Yeah. And I have to say, you know what? People are really interested in this. You may not be. You may have no interest in gardening. You may think that stick to the tried and tested will do yet another makeover show. But in reality, people are actually interested in this. And all you need to do is go out and meet those people and speak to them. But they don't. Mm. With things like social media, you have that ability to bypass big gatekeepers. So yeah. what that does is really democratizes everything. So I've learned so much from people with just an iPhone wandering around the jungle in Indonesia, for example, or a bonsai artist who lives in a tiny flat in Tokyo. They would never have a gardening book. They would never have a magazine or a TV show go around, but they can just take an instant snap of their reality. And thousands of miles away, I get to see that and be incredibly inspired by it. But I think there is something about that miniaturization is wonderful as well. I think part of the appeal of horticulture is escapism. Mm. And the other aspect of it is control. It's a fantasy world of your own creation, but you can make it however you want to. Yeah. And if you are a scientist and understand how plants grow and how plants work, I think maybe you have a bit of a head start in understanding how to recreate something in miniature. But it's very kind of you to say that. But what I think is... Not everyone can have rolling lawns and a rose garden, but anyone can have a terrarium. That's true. Uh, they're fundamentally very easy to make. So anyone can have their own escape. You could just have those on your on a coffee table or, or by a window and all that kind of stuff. The problem I have with terrariums or setting up like my daughter's fish tank is that I'm slightly OCD. So uh, yeah, as, I know. I, as I start to plant stuff, I'm like, no, that's in the wrong place. Got to move We're that like the stone. same person, Jimmy. <laughs> 
So it's a constant battle with trying to make it look natural at the same time. No, trying to organize it. You can't organize it. It's got to look natural. <laughs> but that, that's what gardening is. It's that tension. But it, you're trying to recreate an idealized view of nature. It's not actual nature because nature's full of insects. And like, you know, well, I'm sure you like those, but I don't. Yeah. <laughs> it's filled with mosquitoes and leeches and death and, and mold and stuff like that, which, you, you know, you don't want to see in your idealized view. So you can't, like in gardening, it's in terrariums, at least for me, I'm super gluing stuff into place with tweezers to make that happen. But I think that's part of the, like the joy that you're kind of, if you would just leave it alone and let it do, go to its own devices, that's not art. That's just letting it run wild. When it becomes artistic is you actually having that conversation with it and saying, wow, this I, unexpectedly the plant turned in this way and isn't it beautiful? I'll try and accentuate that. Or it's done the opposite. Oh, it's looking a bit leggy over here. I'm going to try and trim it so it looks its best over here. And it's that dialogue, which you don't really have when you just look at nature in of itself. But there's a really cool thing about aquariums and terrariums. You know, when I was growing up, aquariums were a standard thing. Like Singapore is the world's largest producer of tropical fish and tropical plants. And every market would have fruit, vegetable section, a meat section, a kind of a you know, rice and dry product section, and an aquarium section, because it's so part of the culture there. I think there's something fascinating about aquariums too. The only difference is water, but you really are creating this kind of idealized paradise. Having a bit of nature in the home, the, the whole thing of people download aquarium apps and watch fish on their phone, and you think, <laughs> well, it's a bit strange. The idea of having that in your house is a delight. And I find... If I have a lot of stress at work or anything like that, just to sit and watch fish or in the pond or whatever, yeah. instantly connects you with something that is just so delightful and mesmerizing and just you just unwind and you don't have to worry about things. You're just focused on these simple aspects. I think you get that with greenery in the house, with, with plants in the house and you know having house plants and stuff. But I read somewhere that you've got, is it 500 house plants? Yeah, I do. However, there's a little caveat to that. Many of these are very small. Oh, <laughs> so okay, I have fine. a tiny one. So it's not like you're in a jungle. Yeah, I have a, well, I have, I mean, okay, yes, every surface of my house is covered in plants. Um, <laughs> it is a very small one-bedroom flat in central London. But I, I've done things like, so when you say you look at a fish tank and feel relaxed, so I have this, uh, it's a rented flat, so there's this big kind of bookcase. And in one of the, like, the slots that's gone into it, I put a tank at the bottom, and then I put a, a back wall, like a living wall in that. So it's essentially a bit of wicking fabric, which is stretched yeah. up. So it sucks up the water from the aquarium, and I've been able to plant plants into it. And on each side, I've put two mirrors. Uh, so I have a little water lily inside. I have a kind of a green wall. And when the mirrors just make it look deceptively bigger than it is, each of the plants there is you know, probably tiny, like we're talking 50p sized, like the whole plant, the miniature orchids, for example, or miniature ferns that are that size. There could be easily like 60 or 70 plants in that space. Sure, sure. But you've got a lot more plants than most people, I'd say. Yeah. And, you know, I can shove my head in there on a really dark December night when it's raining outside and life just seems a bit miserable and the news is all disaster. And I can deny the seasons and think I'm in Borneo for 10 seconds and you know that 10 seconds yeah. is the best 10 seconds of my day that's what's so lovely about it you these little areas you escape to or reconnect with you know that verdant world it's so important but i tell you what i i, I think was so interesting about yourself is that you'll be chatting away with all this excitement and then you'll just come out with like amazing killer facts and we were talking about we did the sequence for food unwrapped about growing your own 
He told me something amazing about tomatoes to increase their vitamin C. What did I tell you about? There's a few things you can do with tomatoes to improve their vitamin C. You sprayed it with aspirin. aspirin. Oh, okay. There's a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. So I think most people think that in a supermarket, when you see fruit and vegetables on a shelf, that those things are no longer living, that, that, you know, once you detach them from the mother plant, they're somehow dead. And that's not the case. All the fruit and vegetable section are plants. They're still very much alive. And like all plants, they're constantly interacting with the environment around them. And there are many things you can do horticulturally, even with harvested produce, that will actually make them change their biology, make them do different things. So with tomatoes, something as simple as keeping them on a counter rather than a fridge Uh, The biological processes in tomatoes, which produce their flavor, because they're tropical plants, can only occur above 10 degrees. Your average fridge is four. So just storing them on a counter, which is usually about 20 degrees, will create a significant increase in flavor. But if you're growing them, things like um, playing mind games. So (laughs) aspirin is originally developed from plants. It's one of the many drugs that was originally developed from plants. And it's a synthetic copy of a signaling compound in plants, which essentially turns on their equivalent of an immune system. So when you spray this aspirin onto a tomato plant, it basically goes into the state of hyper alert, like it thinks it's going to be attacked by something. And it responds. And you think that, you know, plants can't run away or hide from threats. So what are they going to do? It can do things like making their fruit larger, sweeter, more aromatic, higher in things like vitamin C, a brighter in color. The bright color in tomatoes is the key antioxidant that's found in them. So not only does it look nicer, it's potentially better for you and gives you better results. And it's as simple as I think you take about a quarter of a half a 200 milligram a soluble aspirin tablet, you chuck it in a liter of water and you spray it on once. And it's based on really good data. Wow. You see, I love stuff like that. It's incredible because it's sort of, I suppose what they could, it's, like, it's almost like a gardening hack in some ways, but it's much more than that because it starts to unfold all these biological processes that we don't even think about in our everyday life. I've been walking through a supermarket looking at tomatoes or potatoes and think they're inert because they've been harvested. Yeah, researchers have found, I think relatively recently, I think the study was 2015, they found that uh, things like kale and spinach, I think the study was in, from a supermarket was measurably higher than it was in the field or immediately after harvest. And they were trying to figure out why there was higher in things like, I think it was vitamin K, this is, I haven't read the study for a while, why it was significantly higher. And it's literally in the supermarket, there's fluorescent light bulbs. <laughs> and fluorescent light bulbs emit a wavelength that's quite similar to daylight. And the plants were just photosynthesizing, even though they were cut and in a bag. So they actually became more nutritious just by being exposed to light. I think that because we're quite animal-centric in the way we see the world, we can't imagine that plants are constantly interacting. They're constantly communicating with not only their related plants, but plants around them and the world of fungi and the world of animals all around us. They're communicating through things like aromas. They're communicating through things like vibrations. It starts to sound very hippie, but this is based on very good evidence. And we're only beginning to just start to untap what's going on, what those messages are, and how they're interacting. And once you can understand that code, you can actually use it towards your benefit. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? Starting to speak in the language of plants to understand how they communicate. So you don't ever think of plants necessarily communicate with each other. We so associate with you know, birds singing or, or crickets chirping or whatever else is communication. But plants communicate and they're always just seen as the background of the natural world. And it, it's such a shame, particularly now, I think more than ever, it's so important that people connect 
with the world around them and, and connect with plants because we're going through this environmental crisis and we've seen the war in Ukraine and, and what's happening there and we've seemed to be moving away from what's happening in terms of environmental crisis but getting young people to engage with the natural world, engage with plants is so important. And we're going to start to see the effects of that crisis very soon. I mean, we already are to an extent. 50% of the world's medicinal plant species are thought to be extinct by the end of this century. We now rely on, you know, humans are essentially seed-eating mammals. 60% of our calories come from just three grass seeds, so wheat, rice, and corn. And the wheat element of that is already under threat, as is rice. Things like coffee are under imminent risk of extinction. In fact, I... Actually, I think the wild relative of coffee is pretty much extinct already. And it's going to affect things like peanuts. It's affecting things like bananas. Not weird and wonderful things that you would never see that might be used in exotic medicine. Standard things you see on supermarket shelf are under imminent threat. I mean, that's why even as I would describe myself as an introvert, you know, hate being recognized in queues. Like sometimes it happens, you know, when you're hungover and you're in a queue for a supermarket. Mm-hmm. It's like my worst nightmare to have to be nice to people. I do what I do because it's so important. We have one plant science student for every 500 animal science students. I know I'm talking, you're definitely team animal, but but there are 500 of you, Jimmy. And, you know, you can't even study botany as a degree in the UK anymore after leading the world in it for hundreds of years. It's so important. Plants are the solution to every major problem that faces our species, from climate change to food security to biodiversity. And we think about them as soft furnishings because of makeover shows. So I think it's so important that we get together and sort of reveal that plants are much more than that. Completely. And I think it's so important that we understand that. And it's funny because obviously I run a wildlife park and we have lots of wildlife rangers. And in that we have a tropical butterfly house and getting the wildlife rangers to understand the importance of plants because we've got to establish the habitat for the butterflies to thrive because they live in captivity. So we've got to effectively be gardeners to create the nectar to feed the butterflies. It's a different concept for these wildlife rangers because usually it's looking after everything from the antelope to the camels and you feed them. It's quite easy. But actually... To see that important link, it starts with the plants first. Oh, definitely. That's the important side to it. You know, some of the best horticulturists I know, the most innovative, the, the most like rule-breaking, the most boundary-pushing ones, aren't the people who've gone to study horticulture at college. They are people who have come from maybe a zoo background, or the kind of person who might like to keep things like poison dart frogs. And what they realize they love the frog And then they've had to create the perfect habitat of non-toxic plants, of plants that provide the frogs with the right environment, et cetera, et cetera. And then sometimes they get really geeky and they have to get the exact species of plants that would grow in the habitat of that frog. And then they start to try and recreate that. And it's almost created a sort of a parallel world of horticulture, very similar to aquariums. People are interested in aquariums because of the fish, but then they get into aquascaping, creating these underwater gardens. And because they haven't grown up and have been exposed to all the same Victorian conventions that outdoor gardening is subject to, they've created this parallel universe of horticulture, which, you know, the two don't really talk to each other, but they've come up with such incredible, cool and fun ideas. I find it so inspiring. So it's great that people are allowed in from different angles. You don't have to just do the same route. And, you know, you talked about growing up and being sent these books on houseplants and things like that. Who inspired you? Who were the gardeners that you followed or the horticulturists that you followed? 
Oh, good question. That, so, funnily enough, I wouldn't say there were that many gardeners that I found particularly aspirational. It's a mix. I've, I definitely had lots of books on gardening. And amazingly, when I started working Gardener's Question Time, I literally couldn't believe it because I was like, I had all of, like, I'm on a panel. And the three other people on the panel, I basically had all of their books <laughs> when I was a teenager. And it's like, it's amazing that you're a three-dimensional person and actually stood next to me. I can't believe it. I mean, I learned from them. In terms of being huge inspirations, I think it's Attenborough. Mm. It's the natural world that inspires me much more than the culture of gardening, because I'm trying to recreate views of the natural world. So Attenborough, absolutely. Private Life of Plants came out, I think I was 12. And... It literally blew my mind. I remember I bought the book and I used to carry that book around with me everywhere. You know, like some kids have like a teddy bear or a comfort blanket. Yeah. 12-year-old me had this book <laughs> and it wouldn't leave my side. Yeah. I'd be on the bus, I'd be on family holiday, I'd be wherever, and I used to have this book with me. So Attenborough, yeah. And uh, there's also a guy when I was in my teenage years called Patrick Blanc. He's this incredible, really eccentric botanist from Paris He's the guy who invented the living wall, which is now pretty standard on buildings, but it was a revolutionary idea at the time. And he has a flat in Paris, which I've only seen pictures of, and literally every single wall is covered in foliage. He doesn't have an exposed wall at all. His like work desk is on a glass platform suspended above a pond, and he has tropical finches and like lizards that are just free roaming through his house. Wow. I mean, it's like Bond layer craziness. He has green hair and like fluorescent green shirts. He's definitely a hero. I'm sort of like the the 1% of, of Patrick Blanc. I'd love to be more like him. Wow, he sounds incredible. I love the idea of finches and lizards running around the house. I'm so OCD. I know I don't like the idea in reality. <laughs> <laughs> but I would train them to only fly in designated yeah, that, yeah, That's the thing. That's the yeah. thing. That's the, but, but it's having those people that inspire you and from different worlds as well is really important. So. Um, and do you know what? It's been a real pleasure chatting with you because the idea of obsessing with the natural world, creating your own little miniature natural world, all this is connecting with the green that's out there. And the more that we think ourselves as separated from it, the worse we become in terms of society and our health and all the rest of it. Reconnecting with these things is so important. Going on your Instagram, you know, if you're in an urban setting or you're in a room without any windows, when I go on your Instagram feed, immediately I'm transported into some beautiful tropical rainforest or looking into one of your little vivariums. Well, funny you used to say that. I mean, the reason, it's very kind of you, but the reason my Instagram looks like that is exactly that's my situation. I live in one of the world's largest cities in a 60s kind of council block that's tiny. And I'd much rather live on a, my own tropical island, as I'm sure many of us would. But in December, that's my coping mechanism, is to create these things. And at first I was like, so in the, mates of mine said, yeah, I should share this stuff on Instagram. I'm like, who's interested? And I guess people are. And it's what's the biggest compliment is when someone tags me in a picture that when they've tried to, they've seen it and tried to create their own. And very often, but slightly frustratingly, they're better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> and um but it's just it's so nice that i mean I, those things bring me a lot of pleasure and it's just so great that other people can get that pleasure as well and you don't have to have huge amounts of money or skill or space like anyone can do that kind of thing brilliant james it's been fantastic thank you so much for coming on thank you for so much no it's lovely to work with you hello guys when you join me back at my lovely hedgerow here, and I'm just watching a beautiful red admiral butterfly just flitting between the bramble flowers here. There's a small tortoiseshell, some meadow brown, there's lots of 
honeybees. It's just wonderful. It's just a buzz of activity. So the lovely James Wong, what a delight and what an inspiration. He is a real ambassador for plants. You know, when we watch wildlife programs, it's always heavily skewed towards animals. But James is so passionate about plants and it's incredible to think you can't actually study botany as a pure subject in the UK anymore, which is crazy. But do check out his Instagram feed. It is awesome. It's fantastic. I flick through it and it just makes you feel relaxed just looking at those images of those beautiful plants. So guys, this is the last episode and I just want to thank you all for listening. We did this whole podcast as a celebration of 20 years of starting the farm and it's been a real delight. I got to speak to the most amazing people about various subjects and I've enjoyed it endlessly and I hope you have too. And if you want to know more about the farm, I have got my book coming out in October. Uh, you can pre-order on Amazon and that tells the story of how we started on the farm 20 years ago as a small rare breed free range pig farm and how we turned that into now a farm and a wildlife park. So get involved with nature, reconnect, grow some food, keep some chickens, whatever it is. And hopefully one day I'll see you all on Jimmy's Farm. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.